Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So we began this series, uh, Citizen, looking at what is the kingdom of God, looking at what, what exactly is, is that? Because in a lot of us, a lot of us go through our lives kind of having this vague idea notion of what the kingdom of God is. And, and really, we, we kind of, as a springboard, we jumped off of what, what the gospel of Mark says, what Jesus says in the gospel of Mark in chapter one, verse four, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And, and, and the, 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 week that, the first week that we began this kind of to, to give kind of a definition to the kingdom, what that entails is that the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And, and it's interesting because today we're gonna actually talk about what that all is leading to. Because all of the work and the tension and the struggle to become more like Jesus in our lifetime has to be leading somewhere. It's not just change or transformation for the sake of transformation. Because that would be pointless. That wouldn't have any, any real result if it was just for the sake of changing. And so we have to, but we have to understand the picture of history that, that the Bible gives to really understand and lock on to what God is doing. And really, the Bible is a rescue story. But it's not about rescuing sinners from a broken creation. It's about rescuing them for a new creation. And there is, there is a bit of a difference between that. Because it's not just rescuing us from something bad. It's rescuing us for something unbelievably good. Because if we're just rescued from something bad, what's the rest of the story? (laughs) But if we're rescued for something good, then that makes a big difference. See, God's kingdom begins in the human heart, but will one day extend to the ends of the earth. The reality is that, that God places his spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in us. And so what that means is that everywhere we are, that's where the kingdom of God is. And the kingdom of God grows through people, through the Holy Spirit indwelling another person, another person coming to Jesus for salvation, coming in repentance and humility and giving their lives to Christ. And that grows the kingdom. One day, the kingdom won't just be where believers are who are indwelt by the Spirit, but the kingdom will exist to the ends of the earth. And it's interesting because many of us grow up in church thinking of salvation as leaving earth for heaven. But the story that Scripture tells is God's reign coming from heaven to earth. And so again, it's not God taking us out of something, it's God bringing something for us. And so it's not an escapist thing that sometimes Christians are are accused of, it's actually we're running towards something. It's a big difference to be running away from something as to running towards something. And we, as the people of God, actually are running toward something very specific that God has revealed to us. This week I was thinking a little bit about 
about how our culture tends to guide us and teach us what to, how to set our expectations. And our culture very much is all about making sure that we feel good about ourselves. And actually, there's a pretty big difference between what our culture wants us to feel good about ourselves and what God actually wants to do in us. And, 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 and it's, it's kind of hard to find scripture that says God's desire is that you would feel good about yourself. Now, what, what, what the, the, the side, the different side to that, it's not that God wants us to feel bad about ourselves, but what God does should result in gratitude. What God has done should result in you recognizing that you are deeply and almost unbelievably loved. And because of what God, God has done, there should be a sense of urgency about what he's called us to do. It's interesting, in the, in the Old Testament, you've got this, this tension in Israel that we see played over and over again. You've got, you've got a bunch of prophets in Israel, and in other nations, but in Israel, who tend to craft the message so that the king or the leaders or the people feel better about themselves because of the message that the prophets are bringing. And every time they do that, Israel suffers because it's not the message that God is bringing to the people. And there's, there's always one or, or, or a few prophets who are kind of rejected by, by the king, kings in Israel because they're not saying they're not basically making the kings feel good about themselves because they're actually speaking for God and they're speaking obediently about what God is saying. And I think one of the things that we have to, that at least I have to recognize is through this series, we've shared what scripture says about the kingdom of God. And for me, it's challenged me to make pretty significant personal changes and I hope and pray that that's been the same thing for you, that you have had, that you have and would grow in gratitude toward God's, how good God is to you, that God is incredibly good to you, that you have and, 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 and that, that also that, that you feel and know the love that is undeserved but never fails, that God loves you with, and that you've experienced perhaps a sense of urgency related to what Jesus has called us to do. Because those things are really, really important. And the reality is that if we really are pursuing Jesus, then we tend to forget about wanting to feel good about ourselves. And we are more amazed and humbled with gratitude because of God's love and the fact that he's called us to join him in his mission. That, that we are called to pursue God and to pursue the, those who are still captives in this world. And so this morning, as we kind of wrap up this series, we're looking at what I would call our homecoming. The thing that, that all history is moving toward. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm gonna read a few verses from that. And, 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 and Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And uh, like all of his letters, he writes to these churches that have specific things going on in them. 
And so the church in Thessalonica, they had some struggles. They had some great things, just like any other church. And, and so Paul, in the, in the last chapter, he kind of is wrapping up his message. And, and so it's, it's interesting because here's what he says. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. And that's Paul's way of saying, you're, you're pursuing Jesus but don't pat yourself on the back yet because you need to do it more and more. You need to continue to grow. There's, you don't wanna plateau and feel like, you know what, I've arrived. We figured it out. We're good enough. And so he says, do that all the more. Keep moving forward. And, and so then in verse two, he says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you would become like Jesus, that you would be transformed. That's God's will for you. And he's saying that you, in the, in the church in Thessalonica, you're not there yet, and you won't be finished growing until you see Jesus face to face. And then as he does, he's, he's specific in the issues that are in the churches. And so in Thessalonica, he gives some instructions about relating to one another. And so he says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so, so he kind of talks about sexual ethics in relationships and how we are to relate to one another, not to use one another, but to honor one another. Because this was a, a, maybe a growing temptation in the church in Thessalonica and there was all kinds of impurity and temptation, and so he was encouraging them, no, 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 you keep moving toward Jesus. And then he switches from sexual ethics to, to, to ethics towards one another, our effect, maybe affectional ethics. And so in verse nine, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. At what point have you loved others enough. Well, right here, Paul says, well, not enough. <laughs> Keep doing it. Do it more and more. Keep moving through it. Because sometimes we say, well, I've, I've done enough. I'm done with this. No, you're not. <laughs> you keep going. And so he says, but do it all the more. And then he says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent with on, on no one. It's interesting that Paul actually kind of repeats what Jesus prayed that we talked about last week, where Jesus said, I pray that my body would be one to the extent that I and the Father am one. Why? So that the world will know that you sent me. And so Paul actually says, grow in 
loving one another so that you will walk properly before outsiders. In other words, so that outsiders, those outside of the kingdom, will see that love within the kingdom and that honor and that respect and that they will see that and be drawn in and say and recognize that Jesus is from the Father. And, and, so, and so Paul kind of says here, he, he puts this together and he, and he deals with, again, sexual ethics and affectional ethics. And then he decides to, to, to help them understand something that's difficult. Because anytime that, 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 that we experience life, it's full of tension, it's good things and hard things. And, and really, we are living in a particular period in history. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see creation. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see recreation. And everything between those two spots, those bookends, is redemptive history. It's God's purposes of redemption for, for humankind. And living in that time between the two creations is difficult. <laughs> Because we experience, as I said, good things. We experience loss, grief, suffering, all kinds of things. And, and so Paul wants to remind the believers in Thessalonica that they don't have to be worried. They don't have to get caught up in the difficult things. So in verse 13, he says this. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that part of living life is that we experience death, physical death. He says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And, and, and so really what what. Paul does here, he begins to help the believers in the church of Thessalonica understand their homecoming. And, and so what Jesus, what, what, what he explains is Jesus promised to return just as he left. He kind of describes that in verses 14 to 16. And, and, and I, I, I can't claim to understand exactly what this looks like, but here's what he says. He says that Jesus will return visibly and audibly, and the souls of the redeemed from the point of creation to the point of history in that moment will be coming from heaven. And there will be some kind of body recovery. I don't know what that looks like. And, and some of you will have scary images of that. Some of you will have great image of that. But there's some kind of body recovery that happens. And, and Paul says in other places, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And so those souls will be coming and, and they will, and it says that those dead in Christ will raise first. And, and the best we, we can understand 
our bodies that are glorified are, are very similar to the glorified, the risen body of Christ. So it's not some kind of uh, uh, vague notion of a body. It's a body different than ours, much better than ours. But, but he says that Jesus will come and those who have died in Christ will raise first. And, and, and one of the things I remember growing up, there were people concerned about like the, the growing trend of cremation. And people were like, well, you know, does that mess up, you know, my body in heaven? No, it doesn't. Um, there's, there's, there's no worries about that. When we think about throughout Christian history, so many people who stood for the cause of Christ and they were, they were burned to death. I don't think that can somehow throw a swerve to God's plan of our eternal glorified body. So, so don't, don't worry about that if you're worried about that. Um, so so Jesus said, it says that Jesus will call those who have died first. And this isn't an issue of value. It's just an issue of order. It's, it's how it's gonna work. And, and so what's interesting, in verse 17, it says that after those who are dead in Christ raise then we, those who are still left, which is interesting because the apostles kind of seemed to think that they were gonna be there when Jesus returned, and every generation after has thought that they were going to be the ones who are caught up, who are still alive. That doesn't mean that Jesus isn't coming back, it just means he hasn't come back yet. And that truly no one knows when he's coming so that we're called to be ready. And so it says that, that then we will be, those who are still there at that time will be caught up. And here's what's interesting that I think we need to pause for a second. This is everyone from the creation of humankind to whatever that present moment in history is. Every single person who's placed their faith in Jesus will be brought together with Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Like that's a lot of people. And there's probably some people that you're like, well, I don't wanna be up in the air next to them. <laughs> but that's a lot of people. That's everyone that has been forgiven of their sins and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ will be brought together in that moment. And that is the reunion of all reunions. It's a reunion with people that you don't even know or haven't met. And some people you'll be surprised about. Some people will be surprised to see you. <laughs> so, so it's one of those things which it will be an incredible moment of coming together. And, and if you just think about that for a second, if, if we really want the kingdom of God to show up, to come, to grow, then, then, then let's not wait until then to be united in the body of Christ with other believers. There's something, as, as I've thought through this and I've been thinking about what is in store for us and how we interact with believers that maybe we, we find out, we're, maybe we're traveling and we meet someone and somehow we find out that they're a Christian or, or maybe you're even in another country and you run into someone who, who, who claims Christ. There should be something about that interaction that is significant because we are going to be with them forever and they have something that, 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 that separates them from the rest of the world. We have something very unique and special in common with them. 
And, and those meetings here on earth should be a shadow of that meeting that we have with Christ in the clouds, with all of, of God's family. And so then, and then, and then Paul ends his thought by saying, therefore encourage one, each other, one another with these words. And I think one of the interesting things about this passage is that this is kind of known as the funeral passage. Like inevitably, this is the text for most funerals where we talk about we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we have hope that we will be resurrected, that we, we, we will be together if we are in Christ. But I think we sell this passage short when we, when we see it as the funeral passage because I think when Paul says, encourage one another with these words, he's saying this is not a, a, not a passage about funerals. This is a passage for the living and the kingdom of God because it contains incredible encouragement for what we are called to do now and what we can expect later. And, and so really, the entire Bible is about the kingdom of God. It really is. If you go back to the law in the Old Testament, Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers, if you, if you look at the, the law the law is all about reviving hope in the kingdom. It's letting humanity know that there is hope for the kingdom of God, that, that everything isn't gone, that everything isn't destroyed, that even though it may look bad, even though there may be failure, that it's not over and there's revived hope in the kingdom. And then you get to the prophets who, who spend all their time really foreshadowing the kingdom and saying, this is what the kingdom will be and this is, this is what's coming it's the promise of, of the king who comes and reveals himself. And then in the writings, things like the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, it's really unpacking life in the kingdom, what life looks like in the kingdom. And then you get to the gospels, which are an embodiment of the kingdom. Christ comes and he says, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is within you. And he goes and he, he begins to, to, to unpack that. And then in Acts and the epistles, we see what kingdom community is supposed to look like and what it can look like. And then finally in Revelation, we see the achievement of the kingdom goal. Really as, as, as hard as sometimes Revelation is to read because it's got a lot of imagery and symbolism and, and a lot of things that we, 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 we don't quite wrap our heads around Really, if you look at Revelation as the achievement of the kingdom goal, that's what it is. And so as we began this series, we talked about the king's power over the king's people and the king's place. And this morning, I just wanna unpack briefly the king's power, the king's people, and the king's place as it relates to the final days and the revealing and the achievement of the kingdom of God. And so, and so, again, Revelation unpacks what this looks like. And so the power, the king's power or the power of God, we, we see in Revelation, we see the kingdoms that become united, either through, through destruction or through repentance. And, and, and so what we see in Revelation chapters four and five there is this road to victory through sacrifice. 
And it's really important that we understand this and see this in God's word because it is, it is the theme of the entire word of God. In chapter four, you have this heavenly court where, where judgment against the nations and the kingdoms of earth will flow out. And in this court, you see all these spiritual beings surrounding the throne of God and God being the sovereign God that he is, the God above all gods and the king above all kings. And what you see is, is God moving to make everything right, to judge the kingdoms of the earth and to install his kingdom finally and forever. And so if, if, you, have, if you pick up in, in Revelation chapter five, there is this dilemma because all of these beings are worshiping and, and exalting God, but there's a dilemma as they begin to look to make all things right and unite kingdoms and bring the kingdom of God to visible fruition. So in chapter five, verse one, it says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open up the scroll and break its seals? And no one, listen to this, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one. It says, I began, John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, pause with me for a second. Imagine this, the, the court of heaven with all the supernatural created beings around God and the apostle John being able to have this vision and see what's happening. And there's a question asked, who can open the scroll, which opening the scroll then brings the end of, uh, and the end of our time as we know it and makes everything right. And it says that no one was able to do it. And John gets kind of depressed and worried then an angel says to him, an elder says to him, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is worthy to open the scroll. And it's interesting that the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy, and, and who is that? That's Jesus Christ is worthy to open the scroll, but not for the reasons that our world would think he's worthy. Look what, it, look what John writes next. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Okay, now, now again, stick with me on this. A lion is a symbol of what? Power, right? Power and authority and victory, but a lamb is a sacrificial object. And it says that the lion of the tribe of Judah is able to open the scroll. But then it says, I turned and I saw a lamb that appeared to be slain. Reading on in verse seven, it says, and he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then skipping down, the, the, all of these elders and creatures begin to sing and say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I think it is critical to understand Revelation 5 in order to be a disciple of Christ the way Jesus calls us to be a disciple. Because you see, the lamb and the lion are pictured here. No one can open the scroll except for the Lion of Judah because he is the lamb that was slain. This is the central theme of the New Testament. Victory through sacrifice. Understand that the lion is defined by the lamb. That is the opposite our culture teaches us. Our culture tells us that power is defined by the lion and Jesus teaches us that power is defined by the Lamb. And so when the church tends to be liony, they're not actually following the example of Jesus. The church exercises its power that is received from Christ through sacrifice. Because the Lamb defines the lion. In, 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 in Revelation chapter 19, we, we again see, see, this, see this true. It says, after I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls, peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true. And, and, and so we see that, that the power of the king's power is, is evidenced 
through his sacrifice. And he conquers all things. And then we look at the king's people, the people of God. This immense power of the lamb is wielded for the people of God and the glory of God's name. And, 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 and so we see that this, this image of, of the lamb wielding this incredible power to open the scroll and pronounce judgment on the kingdoms of the earth and finally bring all of God's people up with him. In Revelation 21, 1 through 5, again, we, we see this picture of both the king's people and the king's place. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who has, was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he, also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, the kingdom of God is God with his people. And, and when his people are together with him, we need to understand the fulfillment that we will experience. Here's the thing. It's not everything I currently want, but the fulfillment of everything that I would want if my desires were identical to God's. See, here's the problem with, with our desires, what we're shooting for. We don't know what to ask. Have you ever been in a situation where you've asked for something, and after you asked for it and you got it, the person on the other end said, hey, yeah, well, you know, you could have gotten this too, but you didn't ask for it. And then you say, well, I didn't know that was available. <laughs> I didn't know I could ask for that. That's exactly what it is, our lives compared to what God desires to give us. So, so our fulfillment, when, when, when the kingdom of God is brought to its fullness, will be everything that I would have asked for if I knew the big picture. And if I knew what was available, if I knew really the depth of, of, of graciousness and love that God loves me with. So God protects his people and he judges the kingdoms of the earth. And then finally, the place of God or the king's place is the establish, establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Revelation 17 through 19 talks about the destruction of Babylon, which is the judgment and destruction of all the kingdoms and the cities of the earth that have set themselves up against God's kingdom, which is every single civilization and city on the planet since the beginning of history. But it says that God brings a new heaven and a new earth and places it with man, and God lives there, and we dwell there together and it's not some weird, vague, ethereal thing that we experience. We experience life, real life. It's like today we're in black and white, and when we're in heaven, we're in color. And that doesn't even fit right because it's not enough to explain what happens. You see, the power of God is displayed for the sake of his people and to establish them in their new home, the greatest homecoming in it ever. And so there's a question that we run into. We say, well, okay, hold on for a second. 
But if that's all gonna happen, then why, why should I even try to become more like Jesus now? Because if that's waiting for me, maybe I could skip all the tension in life and I could just enter into that perfect situation. One of the things that scripture teaches us is that there will be rewards that we receive in heaven and not everyone will get the same thing. In fact, some won't get any rewards because of how they chose to live their life and not obey Jesus the way he's called them to. Others will receive many rewards. And I I don't know how that works. I don't know what that looks like. But I do know this, that we're not rewarded for our justification or our salvation. The judgment seat is not a final exam for entrance into heaven. You know, you hear the jokes about like, when you die and go to the pearly gates and St. Peter's there and he says, why should I let you in? Why should I let you in is not a question that will be asked. Because Paul says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the rewards are not for becoming a Christian because you see, Jesus did all the work and there's nothing we can do to enhance that. The rewards that the Bible speaks of are for our progressive sanctification for our transformation, for us becoming like Jesus, for us doing what Jesus told us to do. And so if, 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 you, if you don't really image God's heart and holiness to the lost, if you and I don't pursue transformation to become like Jesus, if you and I choose to dismiss being united like Jesus and the Father are one with other believers, then we won't get rewards from Jesus in heaven. Rewards apply to how we behave and how we think and how we grow and develop as citizens in God's kingdom. The nature of those rewards, again, we're not totally sure. They could be possible varying degrees of stuff. Could be increased capacity or, or responsibility. But it's hard to think of that in our human state, in our fallen state, because anytime anyone has more than me, there's a little bit of envy. When Sherry and I go walking at night to walk the dog and go for a walk together in our neighborhood, there's this one house, and I don't know who lives there or what they do, but I see a different exotic car every week there. And I hate them. (laughs) No, I'm kind of jealous of them. Because there are awesome cars there. Like we were walking, and Sherry's like, is that a Ferrari? And I'm like... Yes, it's a Ferrari. But, but I mean, it's just, I'm just kind of like, man, there's some envy there that like, how do, what are they doing there? But we think about that and we think, well, if I'm in heaven, will I regret for eternity that I didn't do maybe something that I should have done? Or will I be envious of someone who seems to have greater responsibility or, or a greater whatever that looks like in heaven? I think Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher who... Um, was known to give really long, monotone sermons, but was incredibly powerful. Preached a really long sermon about rewards in heaven. And to summarize what he said, this is kind of what he said, which I think is really critical to understand, to begin to understand what heaven will be like. He says, there is a real difference in holiness between believers. And we, we can see that. We can see that not everyone pursues Jesus and is becoming like Jesus the same. A real difference in holiness among believers, yet in the kingdom, it will be a community of love in which these differences not only do not produce envy 
or regret, but actively function to produce the greatest happiness for the community as a whole. In other words, that when I see others, when I am in the kingdom, when Jesus comes back and I see others with maybe greater status than I, my response won't be jealousy, but it will be celebration of what God has done. And when somebody sees me who has maybe greater rewards than I have gotten, they will not feel superior over me, but they will feel united with me in the same love that God loves us both in. It will be different than anything we can possibly imagine. It's what our hearts long for here, but won't experience until the kingdom. And so until then, what do we do? We are to live in a way now that will require the least change and receive the most honor at the final revealing of the kingdom. In other words, see what I'm saying is right now, what our job is now is to do, is to be obedient to Jesus, to be striving to become as much like Jesus as possible so that when he returns or when we see him face to face, we will have done everything we can and he will finish the job. Less job for him to finish in us. That we've taken his call seriously. And, and so the caution is this, that we spend a lot of time evaluating others, some who we've never even met, and comparably little time evalu evaluating ourselves. And, and so living as a kingdom citizen doesn't always look the same as every, for every person and, and so you see, there's a reality that, that God moves in and through us. And so we, we, we've talked about this, being, being a citizen in the kingdom of God, because we do have a problem. And the problem is that is the same problem that every generation before us had, that our kingdoms are deeply embedded into our understanding of God's kingdom. Your kingdom is deeply embedded into your understanding of God's kingdom. And it's not a surprise to God. It's nothing he didn't foresee, just like he saw Israel. God's love and faithfulness persevere in spite of us. However, we can't turn a blind eye to the fact that we, are, we often prefer our pet sins, ignore God's commands, and excuse ourselves from the Holy Spirit's conviction, which leads to repentance. We have to recognize that. And so really the question is simply this, are you ready does your life reflect what the Bible reveals about someone who is a disciple of Jesus? When Jesus describes what he wants for one who will follow him, is he describing your characteristics and your behavior and your thinking? Are you doing what God has called all of his people to do? And are you doing what God has specifically called you to do? This morning, we're gonna celebrate communion together. So I wanna invite the, the, the worship team to come back up. And um, Paul, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11. He wrote, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often 
as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then listen to this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Or until our homecoming. That's what you do. That's what we do. And so this morning, I want you to take your your communion packet and um, you might have to wrestle with it a little bit, but open it up. And I want us to take the bread together. But I want us to think about this, not only in remembrance of what Christ did, but in anticipation of what Christ is doing and what he's promised to do. Because you see, Jesus says, and and then Paul says, do this not only to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, of the lamb, but to remember that the lamb is worthy and he will return and bring all of us home. And so go ahead and take the bread and, and take that together right now. Remembering that Jesus, his power and authority the line of the tribe of Judah is defined by the sacrifice, the broken body of the lamb. He took everything that you did that I did on himself and made us whole. I want you to take the cup. And if you remember in Revelation 5, it says, and then I looked and I saw a lamb that looked as it had been slain and that that blood of the lamb covers my sins and your sins and that by drinking that cup, we remember that the lamb defines the lion and that worthy lamb receives honor and glory and power forever and ever and will return not to take us out of something, but to bring something to us. That's what communion is. If you haven't drank the cup, go ahead and drink it. What we do together in this is to remember what Jesus did, but we do it until he returns. It's a reminder that his promise is sure and true and that he is coming. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.